I'm Oliver Wong, flying solo today because of technical issues and trying to get all of us taping remotely as part of our new COVID protocol, but rest assured Morgan Rhodes will be joining us again very soon. You're listening to Heat Rocks, and this is one of our special audience episodes where we invite one of our fans to join us to talk about a Heat Rock, you know, an album that's hot, hot, hot. And as it were, today's pick is quite apropos, as it gave us the disco classic Hot Stuff. We are, of course, talking about Donna Summer's 1979 smash, Bad Girls. By the mid-1970s, Donna Summer was the voice of disco music. And whatever stereotypes of disco culture that you might have, think the gold lame, the mirror balls, men with a lot of chest hair rocking Zodiac medallions, Summer's music might be tied to all of that, but give her a proper listen and you'll realize how much she transcended those caricatures and was a fierce singer and songwriter in her own right. Backed by Giorgio Moroder and other practitioners of the Italio disco sound, Summer carved a path through the 1970s that culminated in this album, a two-disc vinyl set that played loud and grooved hard, filled with some of Summer's most signature hits, including the title track and Hot Stuff. Coming out in the spring of 79, Bad Girls was one of the last great disco classics before the genre and Summer's interest in it would quickly fizzle away. When she sang on her hit, Dim All the Lights, perhaps she was inadvertently describing the waning appeal of disco itself, but if this was her swan song to the style that launched her career, she certainly made it a memorable one. Bad Girls was the album pick of our guest today, real name Philip Merritt, but around here we know him mostly by his Twitter handle, Lost in Williamsburg, from which he's been showing us love from early, early on. Philip, welcome to Heat Rocks, and tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I am landscape architect. Uh, I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, part-time artist as well, uh, do a little bit of animation, music, all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, and a big music fan. Surprisingly, this is the first time that on Heat Rocks that we have discussed a bonafide disco album. And we've certainly covered disco adjacent albums, but not something that I think everyone universally recognizes as, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's a disco joint. So before we get into Donna Summer specifically, let's talk a little bit about our respective introductions to disco. And Philip, how was it for you? How did, how was, how did disco come into your life? Well, you know, it was kind of a, a matter of timing. I was entering my high school years right when the disco craze hit. So, of course, I was you know, primed to really be influenced by that. And um, I don't know, I guess one thing I responded to is sort of being a closeted gay young person. For me, disco was really kind of a freeing music. You know, I grew up in a small town in uh, Texas, Sherman, Texas. And, you know, most of the kids there were sort of into heavy metal, hard rock stuff. And I probably get a lot of grief for saying this, but I was kind of thought of hard rock as being music for mean people. And, you know, disco is just so much more welcoming. And uh, that's sort of one reason I responded to it. 
I'm wondering at the time, I think now when we talk about disco, we do recognize in a lot of ways the kinds of the, the queer roots of it. And as someone who I did grow up around disco, but but younger than you, because I was born in, in 72. So my experience with it really came primarily as a child who used to watch. I don't know if you remember Dance Fever on ABC. Oh, sure. Danny right. Terrio. Right, exactly. And Dance Fever, for those of you unfamiliar, was a dance reality competition show. The main reason I watched it was because Battlestar Galactica would come on after. Uh, and so Dance Fever was sort of the price I had to pay in order to get to Battlestar Galactica. But I think it's it has the foremost memory in my mind of sort of the style and sound of disco came through watching that show. Let's bring this back to Donna Summer and Bad Girls in particular. So why was this your heat rock choice? You know, I was going through, uh, thinking through songs and there was kind of this coincidence where I was you're listening to music streaming on my, on Napster. And this one particular song came on from the album, which is, uh, my baby understands, which is uh, one of the songs that I really didn't remember at all. It's kind of a slow ballad. And, uh, it was a really terrific song. So it sort of made me go back and, and take another listen to the album. And when I did, I was just really surprised by how well I knew each of those tracks, except for side three, which is where all the ballads were stuck together, which is the one side that I didn't really listen to. But really the songs, uh, just came all flooding back and I, you know, remember every beat and it was just kind of surprising that it had that much impact because I hadn't really listened to it in quite a while before I sort of rediscovered it. It's really a terrific album with first-rate songs all through. Of course, it's got these three absolutely killer hit singles, Hot Stuff, Bad Girls, Dim All the Lights. But, you know, all the tracks are really pretty good. You know, and this is absolute peak of Donna Summer. You know, some of her previous albums, you know, she had some strong tracks. She had a few hits here and there. But this is really the album where... Everything seemed to come together and it just sort of a terrific album throughout. This was certainly a bit of a revelation to me because I realized even as big as Donna Summer was as a disco icon, I had never really listened to much of her catalog at all outside of things like Bad Girls and Hot Stuff and uh, certainly Love to Love You Baby from 75, which was her first big disco hit. But besides that, most of her catalog was actually largely uh, a mystery to me. Um, and I think if not for having to prep for today's chat with you, I don't know if I ever would have come across one of her early hits. This is from 1974, and it's a song called The Hostage, which is a story song about a <laughs> kidnapping, and it is it is a bit of a surreal trip to listen to, considering that this was considered to be at least a minor hit at the time. That first album, Lady of the Night, I think if you if you only know Donna through her disco stuff, listening to Lady of the Night is going to be a real trip. And it would be perhaps more understandable if that had been an album she had recorded, let's say, 
you know, four or five years before Love to Love You Baby. But Lady of the Night comes out in 74, which is just one year before Love to Love You Baby. So the fact that she makes this big turn from this multi-genre, very interesting songwriting, to say the least, on Lady of the Night to creating one of the first really, really well-recognized big disco hits with Love to Love You Baby in 75, I can imagine it would have given a listener a little bit of whiplash going from one style to the other. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, on that first album, she was going through a, a lot of different types of uh, music. And it just happened to be that Love to Love You Baby was the one that hit. And so she was kind of forced in some way to follow up on that. And that became the driving direction. It's sort of a similar thing, I think, with I Feel Love, in which that, um, that again became a hit. And it had that sort of techno uh, synthesizer sound. And that became the sort of the determining sound, the, the techno sound. So on following albums, it became more synthesizer based. So it's kind of random. I mean, if maybe if she'd hit it with a, a rock song originally, maybe that's the direction she would have gone in. Right. And certainly I think her coming into contact with and crossing paths with Giorgio Moroder out in Italy really changed the course of both of their careers in terms of the ways in which um, that signature sound that you're talking about, the kind of techno electro style is really developed through this collaboration between Marauder uh, and Summer. And stylistically, I wanted to briefly touch bases on this too, is Disco to me has always shared something in common, and this may not seem intuitive to a lot of people, but it shares something in common with country, which is that I feel like they're both genres that have been largely defined by their caricatures. And so with Disco, it's both the look and this goes back to also the, just the success of Saturday Night Fever. It's the look and sound of disco that we have in our head that has been so largely parodied through the decades. That has come to define what disco is to people, which you don't, I feel like you don't really do that with other genres where it's not the, par, the parodic version that becomes the, the defining uh, version of it. But with disco and, and as well as country music, I think people really tend to think of it as only being defined by this impression that gets lampooned and made fun of. And as a result, people don't realize the complexity and the diversity is the better way to describe it is that there were so many different kinds of disco that existed during the 1970s. So it's not just this one style that you see in the movies, but it's really this panoply of disco influence styles. Yeah. And I think bad girls really uh, starts to branch out from the standard disco sound incorporating, you know, rock solos. And it does even have a little bit of a country twinge on a couple of the songs. And, you know, when Bad Girls came out, it was sort of at the tail end of uh, the disco era. So, you know, Donna was really trying to branch out and get a little bit beyond that sound. We will be back with more of our conversation with Philip Merritt about Donna Summer's Bad Girls after a brief word from our fellow Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. I started listening to Ono Ross and Carrie shortly after I broke my arm, and the doctor had told me I'd never walk again. I was allergic to water, addicted to wheatgrass. 
I knew it was time to make a change. There's something about Oh No, Ross and Carrie that you just can't get anywhere else. They're thought leaders, discoverers, founders, healers, luminaries. Ross and Carrie don't just report on French science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. They take part themselves. They show up so you don't have to. But you might find that you want to. My arm is better. I can walk again. Six months. No wheatgrass. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Thank, Thank you, Ross, Ross and Carrie. Ona Ross and Carrie is just a podcast. It doesn't do anything. It's just sounds you listen to in your ears. All these people are made up. Goodbye. Hey, if you like your podcast to be focused and well-researched and your podcast host to be uncharismatic, unhorny strangers who have no interest in horses, then this is not the podcast for you. Again, what's your deal? (laughs) I'm Emily. I'm Lisa. Our show is called Baby Geniuses. And its hosts are horny adult idiots. We discover weird Wikipedia pages every episode. We discuss institutional misogyny. We ask each other the dumbest questions and our listeners won't stop sending us pictures of their butts. We haven't asked them to stop, but they also aren't stopping. Join us on Baby Geniuses every other week on MaximumFun.org. And we're back here on Heat Rocks talking about Donna Summers' hit 1979 double album, Bad Girls, with our special guest, Philip Merritt. We were talking in the first half about the role of Georgia Maroder, who produced this album. uh, And his, as I mentioned earlier, his collaboration with Donna Summer really, I think, helped to define the two of them working together really helped define both of their careers in a lot of ways. Maroder was considered to be one of the architects of what p- people describe as the Italio disco sound. And again, this is a reminder that disco, as we left off in the first half, disco had a lot of different styles to it. Maroder's was much more synthesizer-based. He worked with, and I really like your description in the first half, talking about Maroder as almost like this proto-techno producer because I think more so than perhaps others, he really was interested in exploring that area of electronic synthesized sound. Is this your favorite style of disco compared to, let's say, maybe the more organic, what you could describe as proto-house side of disco that you saw coming out of places like New York? Yeah, I I really responded to that sort of synth sound, and it really was kind of um, pretty forward-breaking. And you know, if you look at Bad Girls, it's sort of uh, divided up into the four sides. And the fourth side, which had their sort of uh, the three most synthesizer-based hits, was one that really uh, stuck out for me. Music simply just didn't sound like this. And I think by 2020 standards, we take for granted that electronic and synthesizer music was always part of some kind of pop music landscape that a lot of us grew up in, but it had to start somewhere. And so if you listen to the differences between what people would have described as disco, let's say, in the early 70s, as compared to what folks like Marauder, other Italio disco, other synthesizer disco people were doing, those are very different sounds. And I think that coming upon this and i think you know a lot of people have pointed out that disco begins to really hit its zenith around the same time that movies like star wars are hitting and so the kind of intersection between science fiction and its popularity in pop culture with this very futuristic synthesizer sound that's happening in the same era these things all meld together in the in a particular 70s sense of what the future would sound like 
Yeah, I mean, I think Donna doesn't really get enough credit for being on the forefront of that um, electronic sound. And like you're saying, we kind of take it for granted now that I think Bad Girls really did set the template for all the commercial blockbuster pop music that came along. And Beyonce, uh, Lady Gaga, Rihanna. I mean, it all sort of goes back to Bad Girls because really, I don't think there was another album like this before that. It really was kind of groundbreaking. I've been talking a lot about uh, Marauder because I think Giorgio Marauder is the, the best known of these Italian disco producers. But of course, this album was co-produced, uh, and I'm going to perhaps butcher his name here, but by Pete uh, Boliette. I think he co-produced the entire album. So uh, I did not want to cut Pete out of this. Pete Boliette is, deserves at least half the credit alongside Giorgio Marauder for shaping the sound of this LP. You know, I think um, Harold Faltemeyer was uh, really important to this as well. Um, he's the guy that did that uh, the Beverly Hills Cops uh, song, Axel F. And I was reading some uh, uh, things about the album and it sounded like uh, for some of the tracks, Giorgio Moroto wasn't around and uh, uh, Harold Faltemeyer actually uh, was on the, in the control booth. And so let's bring this back to, to Bad Girls here. Given that this is a, a four-sided LP, as we've been talking about, there's a lot to choose from. So which, which song really stands out to you? Well, I would have to go uh, with the obvious song, which would be Hot Stuff, I think. I just remember at the time that song was so exciting because it, it sort of brought in some of these uh, hard rock sounds into disco and sort of was making something new. stuff definitely a jam definitely a fire track i know pun intended in this case <laughs> so i've waited to make this confession a little bit about this album in particular and really this style of disco which is that there's a lot of disco that i love and uh, one of the things i forgot to say earlier is that my initial awareness of disco came as a kid who you know i was a 70s baby but it wasn't really a style that i think i really got into until i started djing and having other older djs give me a sense of what disco could sound like beyond just that Saturday Night Fever template. And while this album, I don't think, uh, I think this album is, it departs or is different from what you would have heard from the Bee Gees in the same era. But because it was so popular, because it was a very dominant style, it wasn't one that I really gelled with heavily. And as much as I respect the work that Donna and Maroder and other folks from that school made, I always preferred the disco that was much more, I think, obviously had its roots in R&B and funk, a little bit less so in the synth part of it. And so weaving, weaving my way through this album was challenging because there were a lot of long stretches to it where my, my gut reaction was, I mean, this is cool. It's just not really my thing. But I think one of the things that helped switch my mind on that is my pick for the fire track, which is all the way. So you, you picked uh, track A1. And I'm going all the way to, I believe it's either track uh, D1 or D2, which is Our Love. Yeah, I have all I need to carry on. And my mind and body seem to understand. 
I think it's a really cool song in and of itself, but the thing that really jumped out to me when I was listening to it is when it gets to the 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 hook or the bridge and the drum programming sounded super familiar and it just took me a few seconds to realize why and I'm like, "Oh my god, that sounds exactly like the drum programming on New Order's Blue Monday." It's so similar. I thought perhaps it was just a coincidence, but then it occurred to me that this album was so big, most likely the people in New Order would have listened to it or would have come through the radio in the UK. And sure enough, when I just did a little bit of research, they admit that they ripped off our love, or at least this part of our love, in order to make the uh, the distinctive drum programming on Blue Monday. So I love this idea that this sort of what we think of as a super emo group of synth poppers growing up in this <laughs> depressing part of the UK during the early 80s of austerity England were bouncing to Donna Summer from 79 and deciding to use some of the ideas musically there to create one of the great synth pop new wave hits of the 1980s. Yeah, it's funny that you had mentioned that because I was going to pick that that chorus of uh, that song is one of my favorite moments. Uh, it just so the way that Everything drops out. It's just her voice and that drum programming was just really striking at that time when I heard it. I don't think there was anything like that on the radio. It's certainly distinctive, and especially just that da 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 I mean, that's what you know from Blue Monday for those of you of us who grew up around it. And just to hear the origins of it, which I had never known about, was really a mind blower because it was like, my God, these are exactly the same. Could it be a coincidence? And as it turns out, no, it was not a coincidence. So... There it is. In terms of favorite moments on the album, I thought initially it was for me, it was going to be that where the drum break or the drum programming comes in on that bridge uh, or chorus for our love. But then it really dawned on me because as someone who was listening through this album for the first time end to end, the moments that I got most excited for were the transitions between one song to another because on this parts of this album that were all dance tracks. And so side A1, for example, is just three dance tracks in a row. The, the album is sequenced and the songs are set at BPMs that basically mix the songs together in this seamless nonstop disco mix style, which is how DJs would have described it uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And I have certainly listened to albums that were sequenced so that there is this seamless transition from one song to another. But this might have been the first one of the first albums I've heard where that was made so deliberate. And again, it's not just that this is a disco album. It is mixed like a disco DJ set. And I loved just the anticipation in terms of when I could see one one song was ending and where another was beginning. It was like, okay, how are they going to make this transition? Well, it, it sort of reminds me of another album that was really important to me as a teenager, which was the uh, Night at Studio 54. Uh, I, I guess you would call it a soundtrack. Uh, but that was another uh, double album where the 
I can't remember if that would have come out before Bad Girls or after it, um, but that was also it had that sort of uh, blending uh, in between songs. Totally makes sense, right? If you are a disco producer, especially at this point at which disco has become a hit, why wouldn't you do it like that? But because I've never sat with disco albums, I know mostly disco singles, I just never had heard this before. And now people out there who are disco aficionados are probably like, dude, everyone did that on their <laughs> LPs. I didn't know. You know, this is this is my introduction to it. So those were my favorite moments on the album was just listening for those transitions between which I think maybe one reason. And this goes this loops back to something you were mentioning about, I think, side C, which is all the ballads. Well, because they're ballads, they have classic fade outs. So there's none of this mixing segues. And those that side was the most disappointing because it didn't give me what I wanted, which was, oh, how are you going to get from this song to the next song? Uh, in terms of what is the outro and intro uh, sequencing going to be like. You know, that would actually be one of my only complaints about the album would be the sequencing and what you're saying about those sl slow songs being lumped together um, because there's some really terrific ballads on that third side. And um, I just completely ignored them as a kid. And it wasn't until I was older that I started listening to them. Yeah, I agree that it's, it's great the way those songs segue into each other. But in some ways, it's got this kind of continuous thump it's a little monotonous so i think that if they'd broken it up maybe it would have improved the album just a hair mm. i think that's a great point i think partly i wonder how much of this was going to be dictated just by the particular physics of the format if that makes any sense which is to say that if you're releasing something on on vinyl lp you don't you can't really pack a side in with especially an album of this length you can't necessarily pack in a side um, that's going to play loud, which you want this album to play loud because it's a disco album. You want DJs yeah. to be playing as well as the home listener. So they're not going to try to put in seven, eight songs on a single side. I mean, that technologically certainly existed, but it would have made for thinner grooves. It wouldn't have popped in the same way. And because I think they made a very deliberate decision to release this as a double album, it meant that they didn't have to overpack each of the sides. Anyways, we've been going on this long digression. We were talking about favorite moments. And so, again, my favorite moments are really all the transitions between the dance songs on, on various parts of this album. Do you have a favorite moment or moments off this LP? You know, I would maybe say that the, the intro to, to uh, Bad Girls is, starts off a little subdued and it just sort of swells and builds and builds. And then you get this moment right before the, the verse kicks in where... You know, the toot, toot, beep, beep comes in and that's overlapped with the live horns. Uh, and I think that's a pretty exciting moment on that album. If you ran into someone 
who was completely unfamiliar with Donna Summer. And you had to choose a song off of this album as a introduction to Donna and what she was about. What song would you use as that introduction? You know, I think maybe Dim All the Lights, um, because, it, you know, it's got that disco groove, but it's also a little bit, maybe a little bit more personal. Uh, and she was uh, the sole uh, songwriter on that one. So I, I think that probably means a, or meant a lot to her. And she put a little bit more of herself into that song. And it's just a, a classic, great song. What the ballads bring out, I think, are two things. It's number one, and this is to your point, Philip, that Donna Summer was, she wasn't just a singer. She was a songwriter. She began her career writing songs. And I think throughout her whole big disco phase is that it wasn't just the voice behind the microphone, is that she was very much an active creative partner in shaping these things. And the ballads are a way of letting some of that songwriting shine without being distracted, in a sense, of, of all of the other dance and disco elements going on. Um, and that we, we actually haven't spent any really time talking about her voice and it's distinctive. It's able to stand out against the backdrop of the music and the ballads are where you really get a sense of, um, you know, what the sliding doors parallel universe might've been if disco had never become her main thing, but instead she had been making, you know, recording torch songs throughout the seventies. I could have easily imagined her being, you know, much bigger in the world of R&B's quiet storm movement, for example. Yeah, um, and I and I think one of the things that really works for me on this album is I think this is the album where she really found her true voice. You know, on some of the earlier albums, she she would have more of a character voice, and you know, she would describe herself as a theater actress, and these songs were kind of performances, and she'd have her different voices, her sort of ethereal sex angel voice, or she had this sometimes a kind of uh, 1930s kind of yowsy, yowsy, yowza sort of thing. <laughs> but on this one, she's just more relaxed and more natural and she's losing some of those affectations. And I, I, I think it really works really well for her on this. If you had to describe Bad Girls by Donna Summer in three words, what would you choose? Uh, I would say archetypal mm. in that it did set the format for so much music that followed uh, with this sort of synthesis of dance beats and electronic music, which is sort of pretty much the dominant type of music you hear nowadays. And I, I guess I would say vivacious uh, just because it's very fun, it's kind of sexy album. Um, and then the third word maybe would be thump, just because of that persistent thump that sort of goes through almost the entire album. Well said. Lastly, for our audience members who liked this week's album and want to figure out what to listen to next, uh, myself and Philip should have some recommendations here, and I'll start things off. 
I would go back to one of the albums that's really credited with helping to invent disco, which is Eddie Kendricks's 1972 album on Motown, People Hold On. And specifically, it's the 12-inch version of Girl, You Need a Change of Mind off this LP that is considered almost universally as being one of the earliest disco hits before the term even really existed. But the whole album is incredible. To me, it is one of the all-time soul music end-to-end killer albums, even though, and I want to be really clear about this, Girl, You Need a Change of Mind is a really shockingly, deeply regressive (laughs) anti-feminist anthem. Um, But the album, I still ride for the album as a whole. And again, even if this may not sound to people like what disco is supposed to sound like, it really was one of the earliest albums that helped to shape where the future of disco would go for the remainder of the 70s. Philip, how about you? What do you think our audience members should be checking out next? So I would suggest uh, looking into Cleese um, because she's also a, a singer that sort of became known for uh, kind of a sexy, novelty song, you know, Milkshake, just sort of similar in the way that Donna Summer was known for Love to Love You Baby. But her album Food, in some ways, reflects Donna's attempt to sort of get beyond that one persona. And while it still incorporates dance beats, it's also got some of those organic horns, the rock sound that you find on Bad Girls. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Heat Rocks. Uh, where can people find you online? Obviously, Lawson Williamsburg on Twitter. But uh, yeah, where can people find find you online? Yeah, I've got so I've got my podcast, my audio drama, Lost in Williamsburg, which you can get on iTunes, and I put out my music of varying quality on, under the name of uh, A Thousand Years from Now. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you, and just thank you for just being such a supportive listener for us. Uh, you know, over the, the duration of our. our our growing history it's, it's always nice to, to see um our, our regulars if you will um, uh, you know enjoying the show and, and we really appreciate it well you guys do a great job on the podcast and I, I really love listening to it every week so thank you you've been listening to heat rocks with me oliver wong and morgan rhodes our theme music is crown ones by thess one of people under the stairs shout out to thess for the hookup heat rocks is produced by myself and morgan alongside christian duenas who also edits engineers and does the booking for our shows our senior producer is laura swisher and our executive producer is jesse thorne we are part of the maximum fun family taping every week live in their studios in the westlake neighborhood of los angeles maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported